0: This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2016. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. 1 John, Hebrews, James, 1 2 Peter, 1 John. And chapter 4. I'm just reading verse 8. 1 John fourth chapter 8, verse. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And just particularly those last words, for God is love. There are several things that make Christianity unique among world religions and world views. Uh, There are are the obvious ones, of course, like the virgin birth, the resurrection of Christ, and the fact that Jesus came into the world as the Son of God. He was God made in human flesh. But have you ever considered God's love being particularly unique And it is particularly unique for Christianity. Lee Strobel, in his book, Today's Moment of Truth, makes the case and contends that all other religions of the world and all other uh, worldviews, they either deny love or they diminish it greatly, woefully. And... uh, If you take the example, for instance, of atheism that does not believe in God at all. So therefore, there is no God to show love. Buddhism, Hinduism, Eastern religions in general are pantheistic. Pan meaning all theistic God. And so what they basically believe at the core of their beliefs although there's a lot of differences within their beliefs, but at the very core that there is this God, this force, not a personal God as we would know God, but a force or a power that's impersonal. Now, what emanates from that impersonal one or all is many gods that they worship. Uh, Hinduism has many, many gods, but all of them emanate from this great one impersonal force. By the way, and I know a number of you are Star Wars lovers. (laughs) is that right, Gary? uh, uh, But that is based really on pantheism because George Lucas, the director, the producer, uh, he is an adherent of Buddhism. And so it's this... Uh, this force—they talk about the force be with you—and of course, the force could be good or it can be bad. It can be yin or b- it can be yang. Uh, the Jedi Knights—they're uh, they, the good side, but Darth Vader is the personification of the evil force. But it's just a force; it's not a personal god that you can have a relationship with. Therefore, it can't love. And, and so, even when it comes to Islam, there is. Believer, Muslims do believe in one God, Allah. Uh, But that one God's love is greatly diminished and reduced. Uh, David Woods, a Christian philosopher, he says, although the Quran mentions Allah's love, it qualifies it. For example, in chapter 2, verse 195, or, or a surah that would be in the Quran, Allah said to love those who do good deeds. Chapter 2, verse 222. Those who are pure, God loves. 9 7. Those who are righteous, 61 4. Those who fight for his cause. Chapter 2, The Quran makes it clear that Allah has no love for transgressors, none whatsoever. Or for ungrateful sinners, chapter 2, 276. Or the unjust, chapter 357. Or chapter 436. Or the proud. And Wood's Goes on to say that the Quran states that Allah has no love for non Muslims, none whatsoever. And in fact, he quotes a verse from the Quran, chapter 3, verse 31 and 32. Say, O Muhammad, if you love Allah, then follow me. Allah will love you and forgive you your faults. And Allah is forgiving and merciful. Say, obey Allah and the apostle. But if they turn back, then surely Allah does not love the unbelievers. Muslim apologist Shabr Ali puts it this way. The proper response to God is to love him. And in response, God will love us as well. But the apostle Paul says the opposite. The apostle Paul says that God demonstrates his love towards us in this he demonstrates his love towards us in this, Romans 5, 8, that while we were yet sinners, Hallelujah. Christ died for us. Hallelujah. And John, the apostle in 1 John four nineteen, we love him because he first loved us, which is the complete opposite of those religions and all those worldviews. So our God, the God of the Bible, the God that the Christians worship is not a capricious and uncaring and unloved and detached deity, but is a personal God, very personal, and a God who loves, not like the Greek gods or the mythological gods of the Greeks and the Romans who had to be appeased and placated, but our God is a God of love. For God so loved the world That he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So God just doesn't love the Christians. God loves the world. He loves every sinner and wants a relationship with them. So there you have it in 1 John 4.8. God is love. His very essence, his character, his nature, his personality is love everything that flows from the heart of God to you is from a heart of love it's motivated by pure love and of course the greatest demonstration of God's love is John 3:16 isn't it where he loves us so much that he gave us his son 1 John 3:16 says the same thing basically hereby perceive we the love of God because God laid down his life for us. 1 John 4 9, And this was manifested the love of God towards us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. D.L. Murray at one time was the best known, most well-known preacher in the world. Probably preached to more people face to face than anybody else in history. And one time he was in London and he was preaching, and a young preacher by the name of Henry Morehouse came to him and very boldly asked him, "If I come to Chicago, can I preach in your church, please?" And Moody, not wishing to be rude or unkind, says, "Certainly," thinking that he probably would never ever would come to Chicago, but he did. He turned up on his doorstep. And Moody then had to keep his word. Uh, and Moody said to himself, Well, for one night, I mean, what can go wrong? And even if he messes up well, I'll be there to rescue it. And so young Morehouse preached on John 3:16. And he preached on it so powerfully and so wonderfully. And Moody was so impressed. They asked him to come back the next night and preach. And Morehouse came back the next night. And guess what he preached on? John 3:16. And Moody was overwhelmed. He'd never heard anything like this. And he invited him again and again. He preached every night of that week on that one text, John 3:16. And in the final service. Henry Morehouse said, I've been trying to tell you how much God loves you. Suppose I could borrow Jacob's ladder. Suppose I could ascend that shining stairway until my feet stood on the sapphire pavements of the city of God. Suppose I could find Gabriel, the herald angel who stands in the presence of God. Suppose I could say, tell me, Gabriel, how much does God love the world? I know what he would say. He would say, Henry Morehouse, God so loved the world. That He gave His only begotten Son; Hallelujah. that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. It is said that the effect on D.L. Moody was so great that he never was the same preacher again. They said that Morehouse was the man that moved, the man who moved millions. It totally changed his whole ministry by hearing John 3:16 again and again and again. For many, many people, including sadly for many Christians, there's a belief that persists of a vengeful, austere, hard to placate God who tries to hammer us into submission that we may follow him. And in order to placate this hard and angry God that Jesus came and suffered in our place, To get him to change his mind about us. And while it is absolutely true that Jesus came and suffered in our place and took the punishment for our sins and his body on the tree, yet it was the Father who sent him. It was the Father's idea. It was the Father who gave his only Son for us. His mind was already made up, he didn't have to change his mind. His mind was already made up. That's why he sent Jesus to die for us, for God so loved the world. God just didn't fall in love with you after you found Jesus. God already loved you. That's why you found Jesus. That's why he sent Jesus to die for you. And so that's why he was willing to give his son for us. God's work on the cross is the proof of God's love for us, not just the cause of it. It's the proof of it. We must never separate the love of God, the love of Christ, from the love of the Father. They're both one in the same. Paul said, for God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. So no wonder we say that Christianity is unique because we have a God who truly loves us. Not an angry, vengeful, bitter, hard to placate, must be appeased God, but a God who loves us so much that he allowed his son to die for us. John says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Becky, a few moments ago, giving her report, uh, mentioned those uh, various words that uh, stand for love. In New Testament days, there were four of them, and she mentioned a couple of them. Just let me expand just a little on that. And if I may make a little correction. Eros. Eros was a word that was used when speaking of sexual love. It's where we get the word erotic from. And eros is a selfish love. It's a self-gratifying, demanding love. It's motivated by the flesh and the impulses of lustful desires. It is the basest term for love. And that's why it is never used in the New Testament. It's not the love that God wants for us, God wants a pure love. It's not a word that God wants associated with His people. Sturgio is a word that is mainly used in relation to the love of family members that they have one for the other, like a love between parents and children or various members of the family or brothers and sisters and so forth. In 2 Timothy 3 3, Paul uses it in a negative sense. He says that one of the signs of the last days, that there would be people that would be without natural affection. In other words, the disintegration and the deterioration of families would be greatly accelerated in the last days. And boy, we can see that happening today. We can see the whole institution of marriage under attack today like never before. Would we ever ever believe, would we ever see governments who would legislate against the natural law in the Bible of marriage between one man and one woman? But that's what we're living in today. Phileo is a word that denotes a faction between two or more people. It speaks of devotion and friendship. And from the word phileo, we get familiar words like Philadelphia. Think of the city of Philadelphia in America. The two words are two words together. Adelphos, brother, and phileo, love. So Philadelphia simply means brotherly love. Philanthropic. The word philanthropic. Again, two words. anthrophos. Which is mankind, and phileo, which is love. So a philanthropist is someone who loves mankind and who gives or helps mankind. Uh, The Microsoft uh, owner, what is his name again? Bill Bill Gates. You get my age names begin to slip your memory. Bill Gates is a philanthropist. You set up a foundation, and there's billions and billions of dollars all geared to try to help mankind and try to rid the world of malaria as an example. It's one of the big projects. The word philosophy we get from phileo. Sophos is the Greek word for wisdom, so a philosopher is a lover of wisdom. But then there is this fourth word, agape. Some of you may say agape. This is the God kind of love. This is the highest form of love. It's a love that gives without any thought of recompense or return. It is a selfless love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that would cause someone to lay down their lives for someone. It's love on the highest level. It's a love that knows no bounds, unconditional. And that's the love that God has got. For human beings. That's the love that he imparts. 1 Corinthians 13. Is the. Agape. Type of love. It's probably the most challenging. Chapter in all of scripture. I don't know if you read. 1 Corinthians 13 often. But if you do. No matter how many times. You read of it. There's going to come a point. In reading it. You think to yourself, I'm not there yet. I haven't mastered that yet. Let, let me read it to you in the message. The message is a paraphrase. Don't often read from the message publicly, but it's a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson. It's an everyday language. So, 1 Corinthians 13 from the message If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I am nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything as plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake and be burned as a martyr, but I do not love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I am bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep the score of the sins of others. Doesn't revel when others grovel. Takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. Puts up with anything. Trust God always. Trust God always. Always looks for the best. Never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Love never dies. Inspired speech will be over someday. Praying in tongues will end. Understanding will reach its limit. We know only a portion of the truth, and what we say about God is always incomplete. But when the complete arrives, our incompletes will be cancelled. When I was an infant at my mother's breast, I gurgled and cooed like an infant. But when I grew up, I left those infant ways for good. We don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. And we'll see it all then, see it as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. But for right now, until that completeness, we have three things to do to lead us toward that consummation. Trust steadily in God, hope unswervingly, and love extravagantly. And the best of the three is love. Hmm. No matter what... Translation or paraphrase, read that in. It's still very challenging, isn't it? Probably there's no story in the Bible that so emphasizes and demonstrates God's love toward us than the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son, you know, uh, has got three main characters, the prodigal son, the father, and the elder brother. And because we always call it the parable of the prodigal son, actually it should be the parable of the father heart of God. Because that's the central message in the whole story. Can we just refresh ourselves just very briefly with the story? And I'll just make a quick comment or two. In Luke chapter 15, reading from verse 11, Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of, them, younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no man gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and no longer worthy to be called your son. "'Make me like one of your hard servants.' "'And he arose and came to his father. "'But when he was still a great way off, "'his father saw him and had compassion "'and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. "'And the son said to him, "'Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. "'I'm no longer worthy to be called your son.' But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to make merry. And his older son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, "'Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fat calf.' But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. And so he answered and said to his father, "'Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time.' And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who who has devoured your livelihood with harness, you killed a fatted calf for him. And he said, son, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found." And so the father had a love for his prodigal son that was unparalleled. There was a heart of grace and mercy and pardon and forgiveness that emanated from that agape love, that unconditional love. Notice it was unconditional most of our love is conditional for the best part. I love you if, I love you when, I love you until, or I love you because. But God's love is unconditional. He just loves. Doesn't it mean that people will receive his love, but he just loves unconditionally. And notice that the father put no conditions upon him. He could have. He had every right to. But he didn't. It was complete, unconditional love. It was unselfish love. It looked like the father got a bad deal. This waster of a son. He had took his inheritance even before it was time to receive it should have had the courtesy and the manners and the decency to at least wait till the old man had died but no he wanted it selfishly for himself and when he got it he was selfish and how he used it he wasted it on self and so it would seem that the father was the one who got the rotten deal the worst side of the bargain but the father didn't care All he cared about was the son had returned. His love was unselfish. His love was uncondemning. Father didn't condone what he did, but he didn't condemn. him. Just like the woman taken in adultery. And Jesus certainly didn't condone her adultery, but he didn't condemn her when all those accusers walked away, he says, where are your accusers? She says, no man accused me, Lord. Neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. (laughs) Neither do I condemn you. It's a big difference between condemnation and conviction, isn't there? Condemnation drives us away from God. Conviction draws us to God. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts, not to push us away from God, but to draw us to God. Conviction's an uncomfortable feeling. I remember before I got saved, just a little while before it, I was under great conviction. And it was uncomfortable. Because I was brought up in a Christian home, I knew what it was. I wasn't ignorant. I knew that God was dealing with me. I knew that he sent his spirit to convict my heart of my sin. And he was drawing me. It didn't push me away from God. In my feelings, I wanted to run. But that wasn't God pushing me away. It was the Holy Spirit drawing me, and I was resisting. Like Paul on the road to Damascus, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. He was feeling the conviction, and he was fighting against it. But all the time, the Spirit of God was drawing. And that's the same with us, isn't it? The Spirit of God draws us. Son didn't come back arrogantly. He came back with true humility. He got to the end of himself, and all of his pride and his arrogance and all of that youthful bravado and all that was all gone. He got to the bottom of himself, and then the Holy Spirit drew him. And so it was on condemning love, it was unceasing love. Every day from the day the son had left, the Father would go out to the edge of town and he would scan the horizon. Probably at tea time, just before the sun would set, in the hope, perhaps in the belief. Trusting that somehow the son would remember the father's house and would come back. And unceasingly he looked for him every day. Aren't you glad that God was unceasing in his drawing us and looking for us? And he was. And he was very patient, full of patience. And it was an unbiased love. The father really didn't have any favorites. He loved both sons equally. Son, you are ever with me. All that I have is yours. All you had to do was ask. Sure, I would have killed the fatted calf for you too. But you never asked. The reason why I'm doing it for him is because he was lost, now he's found. He was dead, now he's alive. But I don't love him any more than I love you. My love is just the same for you as for him. But the elder brother didn't see it like that. Sure he didn't. This your son. (laughs) Not my brother, but this your son. An unbiased love. Isn't it wonderful to think that right now all of us sitting here, or perhaps those who's listening to my voice, isn't it wonderful to think that there's no difference in his love for us, that he loves us all in that unconditional, unceasing, unbiased way? Unless... Our love is the agape love. We'll not love in a non-biased way or maybe even a non-ceasing way. We fall short of that. Remember Jesus after he got Peter after Peter's denials? Remember how he met him on the shore? Peter, do you love me? Do you truly, genuinely love me? <laughs> Big question. Peter had bragged about his love, and he felt like a house of cards, didn't he? Peter, do you really, truly, honestly love me? Lord, you know all things. You know I phileo you. I love you like a brother. Hmm. Do you really? And he kept pressing and pressing and pressing. Peter normally, or naturally, I should say, after denying him and failing so miserably, just couldn't find it in his heart to say, Lord, I truly love you with an agape love. He just couldn't find it in his heart. And we can understand why. But Jesus was pressing him. Jesus loved him unconditionally, didn't he? In Jeremiah 31 and 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. John 13 and 1, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Did he love the traitor? Yeah, he loved him. <coughs> Call him friend. Friend betrayest thou the son of man with a kiss. So here we are today. Uniquely we have a God of love can't find a God like this anywhere else. <laughs> Nowhere else. No worldview. No religion. Uniquely a God of love. Say, so what about Judaism? Well, Christianity came from Judaism. That's why I mentioned all those others. Because they didn't spring forth from Judaism. From this God of love. So never ever doubt... God's love for you. Never wonder, does he love me? Be assured. Be confident. You say, well, when I mess up, I don't feel like he loves me. So that's why we repent. That's why we hold up our hands and say, sorry, Lord, I did wrong. Because we can go to a God of love. There's a mercy seat for us, isn't there? That we can come with confidence to, to find help in time of need. And we can do that because He is a God of love, and a God of mercy, and a God of compassion. It all flows from a heart of love to us today. And so here we are on this Lord's day in the house of God. Neat little Christians, all seated in rows. (laughs) But sometimes we're not so neat little Christians. Sure we're not. Sometimes there's anger. Or sometimes there's a grudge. Or dare I say, sometimes even bitterness, if we're not careful, can take root. In spite of all of that, there's a God of love who loves us. Now, whenever we're like that, we're not availing of ourselves of that love, we're not enjoying it, we're not feeling it, we're not sensing it, but it's there just to the see him for each and every one of us. Whenever you worry about do I love him, because sometimes As believers, we need to ask ourselves the honest question. Do I love him? If you feel you fall short of that, the best answer to that is, he loves me. Always. And because he loves me always, then my love for him, in the light of he loves me, will begin to grow. You see, John the Apostle, speaking of himself several times, says, that disciple whom Jesus loved. His focus was not so much in him loving him, but Jesus loving him. That disciple whom Jesus loved. Yes, I know he loves the rest, but boy, I know he loves me. No wonder he was called the Apostle of Love. And whenever you ever read his when you read his letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, particularly 1st John, when you read his letters and see how much he emphasizes to the church, he's an old man now, he calls the church, my little children. What's his theme? Love. Always was his theme, love. No wonder Jesus got John to take care of his mother because John was a man who loved and knew he was loved. Listen, if you know your partner, for instance, loves you, it's easier to love them back, isn't it? It just flows, doesn't it? You may not say every moment, of every day, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, but when you know they love you, and they know you love them, then it flows, doesn't it? So God is love. Character, his essence, his nature, his heart, it flows with love to us. And to all mankind, he loved the world. Glory to God. Not like Allah who loves Muslims only. Not like the pantheistic God who's just an it who cannot express love, just a power of force, but a personal God who loves personally each and every one of us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you demonstrated your love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, you didn't wait until we loved you. You initiated and moved towards us based on you loving us. And so we thank you today that we can rest in your love. We can have confidence in your love. We can trust in your love. And yes, we will fail you. And there's times, Lord, we will, not, we will fall woefully short. But we thank you, Lord, that you never fail, that your love never runs out. It doesn't come short. So we give you thanks for this, for all that Christ has done for us. In Jesus' name.